to the General Well Servicing CAOEC podcast. We have a great conversation with President of Alberta Enterprise Group, Danielle Smith, and we're not going to waste any time getting to it, so let's get right to the industry update. Our industry update is brought to you by RiggerTalk. RiggerTalk is your global energy services network. Join the growing RiggerTalk community of over 400,000 energy professionals worldwide. Get pinned on the map today at RiggerTalk.com. On the drilling side, this August we had 4,421 operating days compared with 1,395 in August of last year for an increase of 3,026 or 217 percent. Month over month we had 3,501 operating days in July, so we're up 920 days or 26 percent compared to last month's numbers. Active rigs for the month averaged 164, up from 52 in July of 2020 for an increase of 215% year-over-year and an increase of 10,400 jobs. Our registered drilling rig fleet is flat at 489 and our year-over-year rig count is down 16 rigs or 3%. Provincially, in August, Alberta averaged 71% of active rigs, Saskatchewan 16%, BC 11%, and Manitoba 2%. In 2020, Alberta had 66% of active rigs, BC 24%, Saskatchewan 8%, and Manitoba 2%. On average, over the month, 109 rigs, or 67%, were drilling for oil, and 46 rigs, or 28%, were drilling for gas. Seven rigs, or 5%, were drilling for geothermal, potash, or helium. On the service rig side, in August we had a total of 91,148 operating hours, up from 52,425 in August of 2020 for an increase of 38,723 hours, or 74%. Month over month we had some late reporting and our adjusted op hour total is up to 89,212 for July, which gives us an increase of 1,936 hours, or 2%. The month-over-month working service rate count is down to from 476 in July to 474 in August. Year-over-year, we are up from 368 working rigs in August of 2020, or a total increase of 106 working rigs this year. The hours per working rig average is 152 for August, down 3 from July's 155, and up 47 year over year. Provincially, this August, Alberta saw 66% of service rig activity, Saskatchewan 24%, BC 4%, Manitoba 3%, and Ontario 2%. Last year, the provincial breakdown had Alberta at 68%, Saskatchewan at 27%, BC at 3% and Manitoba at 2%. According to the EIA, September 8 short-term energy outlook estimates that 98.4 million barrels per day of petroleum and liquid fuels were consumed globally in August, an increase of 5.7 million barrels per day from August 2020, but 4 million barrels less than in August 2019. 
EIA has lowered its annual consumption forecast for 2021 by 200,000 barrels to 97.4 million barrels per day, a 5 million barrel per day increase from 2020. WTI pricing estimates for 2021 are down slightly from last month's estimate of $65.85 US to $65.69. Over the past couple of months, this estimate has crept downward by approximately 30 cents, but remains over $65 US per barrel. If WTI can keep up its current floor of $70, we can expect these forecasts to tick upward somewhat for the remainder of the year. Total US oil production was 11.3 million barrels per day in June, up 100,000 barrels per day from May's totals, and is expected to be relatively flat through the remainder of the year before it starts rising in 2022 to a forecasted 11.7 million barrels per day. On the natural gas side, in August, the natural gas spot price at Henry Hub averaged $4.07 per million BTUs, which is up from the July average of $3.84. The August increase reflects hotter temperatures on average across the U.S. compared with July, which caused demand for natural gas prices in the electric power sector to be higher than expected. Prices rose further in late August when Hurricane Ida caused a decline in natural gas production in the Gulf of Mexico. As of today, September 20, we are at 170 active drilling rigs, up from 157 this time last month, and 45 this time last year. Of those 170 rigs, 104 are drilling for oil, 49 are drilling for gas, 14 are moving, and three are drilling for helium, potash, hydrogen, or geothermal. That's it for the industry update. Our industry update is brought to you by RiggerTalk. RiggerTalk is your global energy services network. Join the growing RiggerTalk community of over 400,000 energy professionals worldwide. Get pinned on the map today at RiggerTalk.com. Okay, stick around. We'll be right back on the General Well Servicing CAOEC podcast with our special guest, Danielle Smith. General Well Servicing is a premier and proud family-run service rate contractor serving our customer base in Southeast Saskatchewan and Southwest Manitoba since 1996. For over 25 years, we have been building one of the most efficient, hardworking, driven, and safest reputations in the area through hiring and training our best asset, our people. To learn more about General Well Servicing, check us out online at general.fasttruckingservice.com. Welcome back to the General Well Servicing CAOEC podcast. Joining us now is Danielle Smith. Danielle has had an incredible career as a former leader of the Alberta Wild Rose Party, media personality with Chorus Entertainment, an entrepreneur, a columnist at the Calgary Herald, and currently the president of Alberta Enterprise Group. Thanks for joining us, Danielle. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, John. Well, I was hoping to get your insight on... Uh, the impact of various forms of media on personal opinions and public policy when it comes to the oil and gas industry. But given uh, we just had an election last night, I guess my first question will be, uh, were you surprised by the outcome? And do you think it will have any implications or different implications for the oil and gas industry? 
What an outcome. I mean, I think a lot of the commentary was, what was this election for anyway? Because we got pretty much exactly the same outcome as we had in the in the last election, which I, I suppose shows that the country's at a bit of a, a stalemate, maybe, or maybe they have a sense that things are working all right. They don't really want to give the Liberals a majority. And they're quite happy with the Conservatives being the, the official opposition. Um, that the NDs and the Bloc didn't gain any ground. So nobody wants to see those parties have a stronger role. And the Green Party leader wasn't able to, to win her seat. So greatly diminished. And then even though there was a lot of um, hype around Maxine Bernier and the People's Party, the, the, the vote turnout turned out to be quite modest. And again, no seats won there. So it's a it, it really is pretty much the same as we've seen for the last couple of years. And it maybe with one exception, the, the, the good news I would take out of this is that the Alberta energy sector did not become the punching bag of this election campaign. Uh, I suppose it's a good thing everybody was fighting over COVID and vaccine passports and mandatory vaccination, uh, because it otherwise it, it really would have been a, an election about do we stop the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Do we stop the uh, construction of pipelines going to the U.S.? Do we uh, allow carbon capture utilization and storage? Or do we stop that as well? And the fact that we didn't have anyone taking a hard line on those issues, that suggests to me that we may finally be moving to some sort of pragmatic approach in how we're going to transform the energy sector that isn't binary. It's not going to be um, either you have it or you don't. It's it's going to transform, it's gonna change, it's gonna be lower emissions, but it's still gonna be here. So, so that could be a positive outcome. Do you think that, I mean, the Liberals started out by implementing some pretty hard policy um, as we know, uh, Bill C-69, 48, uh, and publicly they, they weren't overly enthusiastic, in my mind anyway, about uh, our energy industry. But I've heard subtle changes, I think in the past, let's say a couple of months, I heard uh, Minister O'Regan talking about uh, the industry, defending it quite vigorously. And also Minister Wilkinson said something to the effect of, you know, we need Canada's oil and gas industry in order to uh, provide the economic ability for the development of, of uh, whatever cleaner energy sources we may end up with. And so do you think maybe now that this election is over, that might be, um, I guess, the talking points coming from the federal government, maybe a little bit more supportive, uh, overtly supportive of our industry? I, I certainly hope so. And I agree with you that there are positive signs in that direction. I first noticed it, actually, when uh, Natural Resources Minister was Jim Carr. He was the first person that I saw give a speech talking about natural gas being a solution on a global scale when it comes to, to CO2 emissions. And I thought, huh, that's a bit of a change in talking points because I think up to that point, and it's this is the thing that's been frustrating over the last, um, I'll call it six years because it's been six years that I was on, on radio. And so I was dealing with these issues day in, day out. There, there seemed to be this assertion that the future was going to be a completely electrified power grid 
that our heating would be on. We'd all have heat bump pumps in our houses. We'd all have electric cars. Everything would be on the grid and it would be powered by nothing but renewable sources like wind and solar. And I think that was the vision that former Environment Minister Catherine McKenna kept putting forward. And it's just been blown apart. I mean, there are a few things I would point to about why reality has had to set in. And it's because it's the fellow travelers in the progressive movement who have said, this is not going to work. Like Michael Schellenberger, who wrote Apocalypse Now, that's where he began. And then he looked at the issue and he said, you know what? It's actually better to have energy density so that you have a smaller footprint and are able to produce more energy. Wind and solar isn't going to be able to do this. Batteries aren't going to be able to do this. All the mining associated with getting rare earth minerals and metals, the, the concrete, the uh, crystalline silicon, the, uh, the, the, the steel, the transportation to site, all of that takes uh, hydrocarbon fuels. And so I think that the, that reality set in that you're not going to have wind and solar be net zero until all those other components are net zero. There was Planet of the Humans. There was another movie called um, Big Green Lies. And so I think what has happened is that the environmental movement realized that wind and solar actually have a pretty significant environmental footprint and also won't be the answer. And as a result of pragmatism has emerged with uh, Seamus O'Regan as the natural resources minister, Jonathan Wilkinson as the environment minister. If I understand it, I've been told that Jonathan Wilkinson drives a, a hydrogen car. And so I think that, that what it would emerged is that maybe in Eastern Canada where they've got immense hydropower and they have already have established nuclear, maybe electricity will be the, the principal form of energy in the East, but in the West it's gonna be hydrogen. And if you're talking hydrogen, you're talking natural gas. And if you're talking natural gas, why not export it in LNG so that you can reduce uh, carbon emissions from, from coal as well. So that's a really interesting level of pragmatism that I think is set in. And it's not the only one, because I think what we're seeing with Wells, and you'd know this better than I am, I'm just, I'm just beginning to learn the, um, immense geology that we have here. I just uh, uh, moderated a couple of panels for the, the Geoscience Association, and there's a whole new uh, field of geology opening up for those who are interested in figuring out what lithium potentially have, and helium, and hydrogen, and geothermal. And then layer on top of the fact that we've got this enormous potential to store uh, carbon dioxide. So the carbon capture and storage initiatives. I've talked to a couple of environmentalists who think that the only way we're going to be able to get to net zero is by using the expertise of the energy sector to, 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 to recapture and to store that CO2 permanently. So if that is the beginning awareness that we have among the uh, the Liberal government. I'm not as concerned that some of those faces are going to stay the same, but I think we, we just have to realize the opportunity that we have. And now's not the time to be complacent because the environmentalists are pushing back against all of that. They don't want blue hydrogen. Uh, they don't want carbon capture utilization and storage. If we're going to make sure that we win on this front, I, I think now's the time to, to really amp up the efforts because I think we, we actually do have a government in the um, in Ottawa that, that does understand they have to be more pragmatic. Yeah. Well, given your response there, what jumps to mind is just how complex this issue is. And I think mm -hmm. hopefully that's a bit of a segue to get into our main conversation here about uh, media. <laughs> and um, so in your uh, farewell letter to your fans and listeners when you left Chorus, uh, you mentioned the mob of political correctness. Can you give us some, some I, I guess, an idea of how you would define that mob? 
keeps on changing, doesn't it? You know, when I started in media, it was back in uh, the 90s. So I started writing a column at the, at the Calgary Herald. And one of the things that I noticed is that I made mistakes. You bet I made mistakes. But what we had was a very robust letters to the editor page. And we also had a policy that if you didn't like something the editorial board wrote or you didn't like a column that was written, call us up and you can offer a rebuttal. And so there was a very vibrant, robust discussion on any range of issues. And I, I don't really recall anything being off limits at that time. And so that's, that's, that's how I got into the media is with the mantra that my publisher had at the time, Dan Gaynor, you have to be fair, you have to be accurate and you have to be balanced. And so all, that means that you have to be able to hear all voices. And there seemed to be also sort of a, a convention among the, the reporters that you would try to do a three source story. So if you were going to pursue an issue, you would talk to the person who was raising it. You would talk to the person who was on the other side of it. And then you talk to sort of an independent third party to say, okay, well, this is what these two sides are saying. What do you think? Almost like how we conduct a court of law, right? In a court of law, you've got a a lawyer and a defendant, and then the judge makes a decision on who they think is making the most uh, relevant arguments. That whole model has been blown apart. And I think it's been blown apart because of social media. So we, when I talked about that letters to the editor page, that was heavily curated. You couldn't publish every single letter that came in, but anyone can publish anything they want on Twitter. And most of the time, it's not even real. You've got more bots on Twitter than you have real people. It's anonymous. And it's just, just the most rotten language and visceral hatred that, uh, that ends up getting shared. And the, the real problem that we have now is that I think a lot in the media think that Twitter is the real world. And so if something trends on Twitter, it becomes something worthy of commentary and worthy of doing news stories. And if something becomes controversial, then people end up getting fired or they lose their advertisers or they get punished in some way. And so we have moved um, 180 degrees in the opposite direction of the kind of media environment that I that I grew up in. And I don't, I don't think we're better for it. I don't think it's creating unity. I don't think it's creating better understanding. And I think it's uh, been devastating for a lot of journalists' careers to, to see, to be at the receiving end of that mob. Yeah, it's, I find that the structure of some of those media, like the character limit on Twitter, for instance, you know, how can you have a, a how can you discuss such a complex uh, thing like energy in, in 140 characters? And, and it just seems that, you know, our leaders and our, well, let me ask you this then, to what degree do you think our leaders and, and our larger institutions, so private sector, public sector, government, because they participate in these streams. Do you believe that they're influenced by them as well? Oh, absolutely. Here's, here's a, I guess, one of the, the problems is that when you look at the expertise in the mainstream media, I bet between you and I, we could probably identify all the names in the mainstream media 
who have a deep understanding of energy issues and report on them fairly. And let me say a few. I mean, I think the BOE report is terrific. I love Terry Edom. I love Dave Yeager, who writes regularly for there as well. He writes for Energy Now also. Uh, Bill Whitelaw uh, from June Born Nicola. I always get that backwards. It might be June Nicola Warren. Um, you've got um, Chris Varco at the, at the Calgary Herald. But we've we've lost a few, but I think that they've emerged at the Canadian Energy Center, like Claudia Catano. She is a terrific energy writer. Uh, Deb Yedlin, hopefully, now that she's at the head of the chamber, we'll see her do some robust writing on the on the issue of energy. But if you think I've missed anyone, fill in the blanks, because I think that's a pretty short list. And when and if that's the level of expertise that we have in our own market, how much expertise do you think they have in British Columbia? on the, our energy files or in Quebec on our energy files. So we've got a, a, ma a major national network of newspaper paper reporters, of radio uh, broadcasters, of television broadcasters who know absolutely nothing about how our energy industry works, who take it for granted that when they turn on the lights that you're just gonna get electrons coming down on you don't know where they come from. That when railway lines get blockaded and stop, somehow propane is going to continue to get delivered that you can cavalierly just sh shut off line five and it's not going to have an impact in Eastern Canada, shutting down 50% of their energy supply. The, the, the disconnect between how much we need energy and how much the people that we rely on to report on it to tell us when these issues are coming up and how important they are, massive disconnect. Meanwhile, you end up with more coverage for people like Greta Thunberg, who's a, you know, when she started her career in activism, she's a 16 year old child who doesn't know anything about how the energy systems work, doesn't have any clue what would what, how, what it would take to replace them. And yet uh, I, I probably would have heard more dire warnings of human extinction if we don't end fossil fuels than, um, than I would have ever heard um, commentary on the other side. So that's the real problem is that um, the, the Twitter medium is very emotive. And so you can have a very strong emotional message. We're all going to die, which is a whole lot easier to go viral than us on our side trying to argue a rational approach to how we can slowly and incrementally make the industry less harmful to the environment, more environmentally friendly. Boy, like people are already glazed over by the time you finish the first sentence. So we've got an enormous problem in trying to get our message out. Um, I have some thoughts about how what we can do about it, but we have to sort of recognize how stacked the cards are against us. And since I put the challenge to you, did I did I miss any of the names who do good energy writing? Because I don't want to don't want to exclude anyone, but I, I I have to acknowledge it's a it's a pretty shallow pool. I don't think you missed any names, and I think that again, you know, in terms of whether people are interested in, in sitting down and getting into these complex issues and uh, you know i mean i i'm not sure what your thoughts are on um not necessarily the attention span of people because i don't think maybe that that's changed it's just people are, are used to to quick hits of information and headline reading and i think that's always been the case newspapers etc um but i also think that there's a bit of a demand for uh for longer form journalism and we're seeing that in some of these podcasts and whatnot and that's you know you have to have something like that with complex issues but i just want to kind of 
get back to, to Greta and um, some of the alarmists out there, regardless of the topic, and ask you the question, how do you feel the moral high ground uh, impacts this? Because in my mind, you know, it's so easy to present an argument from, from that perspective, because it's almost inassailable. I mean, you can't really argue against, well, do you want our planet to burn, et cetera? And it lends itself well to, to sort of quick hits. But then, you know, you're kind of stuck with that position that if you don't agree with it, then, you know, you, you agree with all of the other evils that the opposite uh, opinion would sort of entail. And they use that as, as a lever. I'm just curious as to how you feel that fits into, um, I guess, the uh, landscape. Say, and I don't want to be too hard on the industry because I, I understand that an industry operates as a collective and you it's very hard to get collective action, collective voice and collective ideas on how to challenge it. But, but what I will say is that there could have been some balance inserted into the discussion of the, the trends and the extreme weather and the time horizon that we have to make innovative adjustments. The time to have that discussion was back when I was doing it in the 90s. And I remember talking to industry leaders and their attitude was, we just want the government to set the rules of the game. We'll follow whatever it is that the, the government sets. And they didn't want to really engage on, do we have a hundred years before this becomes a problem or is it only 10 years? Do we, can we solve this through innovation? What kind of innovation? How quickly can we roll out innovation? And so what happened is that the, the extreme voices ended up controlling the narrative 100%. And now a lot of engineers and geologists are waking up and saying, well, wait a, wait a minute, we, we should now be challenging some of the extreme assertions that they were making. And my attitude is too late. I mean, it had to be done 30 years ago and nobody was prepared to do it then. So now we have set the rules of the game and the rules of the game are that we have to get to net zero by 2050. And the fortunate thing is I have great confidence in our entrepreneurs that they're going to solve this problem. And so that to me is the only way to get the moral high ground back on that particular issue. Is it fine? You want us to make sure that anytime we emit CO2 and greenhouse gases into the air, that we either capture them and return them to the earth, or we find some way to offset them in the, in the form of carbon sinks with our ranchers and farmland putting it into the soil or with our foresters putting it into the, um, the forestry assets. We now, that is now what we have to do is that we have to find a way to get to net zero and we have to find a way to do it credibly. And we have to find a way, in my opinion, to do it faster than anyone else. And I think this is the, the beautiful thing about Alberta because we have all of these different means that we can export natural gas to China and reduce emissions that way, that we can develop a hydrogen economy, capture the CO2, either bury it underground or turn it into useful products because there's a whole range of useful products that, can, that are now being developed out of CO2, including industrial minerals and cement, ethylene, propylene, uh, even carbon nanofiber, fiber, which could be a replacement construction material for steel. Uh, so we can do that aspect of it. We've got immense landscapes for forestry and, and ranching and farming that we can use for, for carbon sinks. And so to me, um, 
taking the position of, yes, we accept the challenge and we'll get there faster than anyone else. We'll beat you to it. I, I think that's the only way to reclaim the moral high ground. And incidentally, I, I think I've talked to a couple of people who, who've done some assessment of our CO2 capture um, and storage capability, and they think we can get to net zero by 2041. I haven't talked to one woman who thinks we can get to net zero by 2027. So why don't we just uh, do the calculation, put that out there, and then we can move on to, to doing the innovating. That, that's the only way I think it this point that we can get the upper hand on that issue. That's one thing. I could go on. Um, yeah. The, the, other, the other thing is we have the moral high ground when it comes to providing affordable energy to the world, because we are the only ones talking about how are we going to bring Africa and India and South America up to the same living standards as the rest of us in the world enjoy. And that should be our target. We should want to eliminate global poverty. We should want people to have a quality of life like we have and, and, for, and for kids to be educated and for, uh, for individuals to be entrepreneurs and for the economies to grow and the standard of living to increase. Those are all things that can only be provided if you have a, an access to abundant, cheap energy. And the best way of doing that is, in my opinion, trying to find a way to get as much um, natural gas to as many places in the world as, as we can. And if we can couple it in implementing it with a carbon capture component and start building out new industries, this to, this to me gives us the upper hand, because not only are we able to address environmental issues, but we're all also able to, ish, uh, to address issues of global poverty and, and, and human achievement. And that to me is a, much, is a very powerful message. Do you think the average Canadian understands, I guess, that context? Or are they still um, sort of believing that, yes, we can you know, do away with fossil fuels altogether uh, at no cost, really, to the world or, or to Canada? Do you know what I've observed about politics? And I can, you can even see that with the result. Um, sort of what we're dealing with with any of the of the issues that we're that we're dealing with out there today is that it seems like our camps, if you want to call it, are uh, are divided into thirds. So you will have one third of the population that is 100% pro whatever it would be. And then you have a third of the population that is 100% against whatever it might be. And then you have a third in the middle that are just sitting there saying, give me your best argument. And so I would say that there's probably about a third of the public that do genuinely believe that we can electrify the power grid, eliminate all cars, get rid of natural gas home heating by 2030, retrofit all of our homes, and that we have the, the means and the ability to do that. Like it's it's not a rational position to take. I think someone said that we'd need to be building a uh, hydroelectric dam the size of site C, six of them a year in, <laughs> in order to meet the targets of trying to, to get completely off the grid. I can't, I, you can't even imagine how much solar and wind you would need to do to be able to get there. So yeah, I think that there is a lack of reality on a part of the third of the public. There's a, a third of the public who I think are still sort of mystified saying, we got a great quality of life. I'm a lot more concerned about affordability. Do we even need to move this quickly? Can't we wait for innovation to happen? Uh, because we know that when you get a good product at a better price and it's cleaner, people will adopt it. You don't have to force people to adopt it. I mean, the iPad and iPhone revolutionized how we did computing. 
and it only really entered onto the stage, I think in 2008, you have to, you'll have to remind me. I, I remember going back, looking at old episodes of, uh, I, I binge watched certain shows and it's sort of funny when they mention the iPhone as it's this brand new innovation, since it now seems like it's been around for so long, but it hasn't. So, so to me, there's a third of the population that is that believes and trusts in innovation and believes and trusts that the market will work and that we'll get there eventually, but we don't have to rush it. And then there's a third in the middle that I think have to be persuaded. They don't think much about it at all. And so they will listen to the loudest voice and they will listen during campaigns. And if we don't put forward a robust argument, like the one that I just described, then then they will be won over by by the rational position that we can do this quickly and we can do it cheaply and we can do it at all by 2030. So I think we're in a position now where we've we've really got to make the case to the world about why it is the energy industry in Alberta has to survive, why it is essential to the transition, and why it is essential to global prosperity. I think now is the time to to do that. Now that we seem to be almost at a bit of a neutral positioning on the part of all the parties. You've got the Conservative Party saying, yes, fine, price carbon, we'll do something about this. So that has, I think, got everybody on the same playing field. Um, And then you also have uh, the Liberals that have a very aggressive spending plan. They can't afford that spending plan if uh, Alberta's economy is crippled. We need the Alberta uh, economy to to perform and we need the energy sector in particular, our, our single largest contributor to GDP and exports, we need to maximize that. So, so it could be that because some pragmatism is setting in, the conservatives have moved a little bit on their environmental policy, the liberals have moved a little bit on understanding that money actually matters, you can't just keep printing it forever. It, it could be our opportunity to, to really make the case and to, to try to get to, to some level of consensus across the country. So how do we get beyond the the uh, journalist you mentioned? How do we get more media to start reporting in a more balanced manner? You know what I think we need to do? I'm, and I'm only partially joking about this. We need to have an energy company headquartered in Montreal. And may, didn't we attract Imperial Oil out here? Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe we actually do need to have um, an energy company headquartered in Montreal because that's where the seat of power is. That's where the prime minister is. That's where a lot of the decisions for the entire country is made, is based on attitudes and opinions in Quebec. And so if you had an energy industry presence there speaking French um, about our issues, so speaking to Quebecers in their own language, then that goes a long way towards establishing that this is an, a, a national industry. Maybe we need to make friends with some of the companies, the big companies in Quebec that provide these engineering services. I mean, there's a the uh, SNC-Lavalin has not been the greatest, greatest actor in the last 10 years, as we all know, but they are an incredibly influential company. And so are there companies like that, that we need to be more strategic? If they have the ear of the prime minister and they employ people in Quebec, maybe we need to be a bit more deliberate in going out of our way to demonstrate that Quebecers get jobs when the Alberta energy industry does well. Um, I think uh, Premier Jason Kenney started off well with uh, Francois Legault in talking about LNG exports off the East Coast. 
And we need to get that conversation going again, because what a blow to the entire country that the Port Saguenay project was uh, was canceled. And so um, that I think needs, we need to get the same understanding in Quebec on LNG that we already have in, uh, in British Columbia. We've got a an NDP premier in British Columbia, and he's he's a, he's full bore, 100% behind LNG exports. So we need to get that same understanding. I think natural gas and LNG exports, carbon capture, hydrogen, those could be the foundation of a consensus in the country. The second part of it as well, though, is that we I think we do need to do a better job of having some kind of industry exchange. I, I know uh, Michael Binion the head of Questair Energy. I mean, he did a, he taught himself French for heaven's sakes so that he could speak to Quebecers in their own language. I'm starting French courses, if you can believe it, on on, on Saturday for the same reason, because I've had, for you. I've had yeah. uh, Quebecers tell me that you cannot talk to Quebecers uh, in, in English and expect them to appreciate what your issues are in Alberta. So she told me it's going to take five years. So I better just downplay your expectations that I'm going to be able to do this overnight. But, but why don't we have more people doing that so that we can create some kind of exchange that we do trade missions to Quebec to find out about their issues and their interests. And then we have Quebecers do trade missions here. And then we, we show them what we do um, and we help to, to educate. I think we can only do that in the business community. And I, I know that, that Michael had done some work in that regard and he, it was it was bearing some fruit, bringing out the Quebec Chambers of Commerce heads and those who are key business leaders in different communities. I, he, he invited me out to speak on uh, on the on the issues in Alberta when he when he was showing them a, a fracking site probably you know about ten years ago now why not do that every year we need more of that and so the as for how you educate the press I mean that's a, that's a harder a harder topic I think you doing podcasts Peter Tertzakian doing podcasts there are others who are doing podcasts in the energy space that I think are are really important in getting our message out. But there probably does need to be some cultivation of energy writers at each newspaper, at each of our major broadcasters, radio and television. And why wouldn't the industry reach out and try to support some of those efforts um, and try to encourage them, the different major media companies to hire somebody who can do the coverage. I, it, it becomes complicated, I know, because you don't wanna, you don't wanna hire somebody who's going to be one-sided. That's not the purpose of it. You're gonna want, you wanna hire somebody who cares about the issues and is going to report on them fairly and knows who to call when an industry, when, a, when an issue breaks. So maybe there does need to be um, some um, approach by CAP and EPAC and CEOEC and PSAC to global and to CTV and to Bell and to, and to Rogers and just say, is there some way that you can make energy reporting a priority and hire somebody who can be dedicated to the energy beat? Why not? I mean, they have dedicated reporters on the environment beat. So why wouldn't we ask for some balanced reporting in that regard? The, those are the, some of the things that, that I'm thinking about, because I, I feel like, um, and the other thing, you know, I should just related to that. The industry has to stop huddling and refusing to do media interviews, because when I was in the, in the media, that was the thing that I wanted to do most. I thought that part of my job in broadcast media was to give voice to our brilliant business leaders here and all the 
really interesting innovative stories that are happening here. I did countless stories on uh, CO2 and capture and new products coming out of it and innovation and clean, how we clean up spills and pipeline safety. I, I can't even tell you how many stories I did on that, but there was always a big frustration I had. I always had to talk to proxies. I had to talk to the energy writers because um, it was so hard to get a CEO willing to come on the air to talk about these issues. And so if your business leaders aren't prepared to make the case to the general public, how can we be surprised that the only message that gets out there is one that, uh, that is dominated by the environmental side? So I think there has to be a result in the industry that every single week, it's uh, okay, how are we gonna get our message out this week? And maybe it's Synovus one week and it's Suncor the next and it's CNRL the following week and it's someone from CAOEC the next week and then it's someone from PSAC the following week. But there should be some strategy that there's a good news story that comes out of, out of, out of our sector and that we're deliberate in getting that message out. And I, I haven't seen that, but I think we should do that. But is there an appetite on the part of <clears throat> media providers for that? Because you obviously left for a reason. Oh, you know, I, I left because, you know what, I could have continued doing these kinds of stories forever. I would have stayed if I could have just done these stories and didn't have to cover all of the other things that I didn't want to cover. This is the problem with being in the mainstream media. You got to take the issues as they, as they come up on, an, on a daily basis. And there's so many landmines in the Me Too movement and BLM and transgender issues, LGBTQ plus, um, the uh, now COVID, COVID becomes so polarizing. Like there's so, sadly, there's so many issues where you have so many things you can't talk about that it crowds out the really important issues that we're talking about here. And so I, I, didn't, I never left the media because of these issues. I wish I could have stayed and, and talked uh, and talked more about them. But the, the thing we have to realize is that we have to tell the story the way people want to hear it. And I'll, I'll tell you the stories that I tell um, when, when I'm out giving speeches. One I love to talk about is how uh, I'm working on this, uh, this project with Chris Kinnear of Sustaining Alberta's Energy Network to, uh, to try to, um, to, uh, to, develop, to develop an incentive program, a royalty rebate pro program to incentivize well site reclamation of the worst wells so the ones that have been sitting there for 60 years and just keep getting passed from hand to hand and nobody ever cleans them up. And so we might be on the cusp of a breakthrough and getting a pilot project. But part of the reason I want to do that is because I've gone to Chris Kinnear's property and I've seen this flare pit that's been sitting there since the 1960s and that was operated by ExxonMobil for 60 years and now has been handed off to a Chinese energy company that is probably never going to clean it up. And I, I just don't think that that's a very good look for the industry. And I think it's a big black eye. So those are the kind of stories that you can say, let's find a plan for how we're going to clean this up. And then you turn it into a positive story. Um, when you do well site reclamation, as I understand it, most of the work that's being done right now is the downhole abandonment because it's easy to do, it's cheap to do. You get the immediate benefit of having the liability taken off the books. But the, 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 the really important work that needs to be done for both the company and the landowners, the surface reconstruction and returning the area to its natural condition for vegetation. Um, and we're not getting to those stories, but there's so many great companies out there that are doing this sort of work and, and wanna do more of it. And one of them, is a company that's a new member of ours where they've isolated 
a hydrocarbon or a bacteria that eats up hydrocarbons. And oh, I think we've known that we have these for some time, but it, it died in 20 minutes. They found a way to suspend it so it can be transported to a well site so that it can eat the hydrocarbons in the soil. That is the kind of story the media wants to hear. It's amazing. Another amazing story is wild and pine, which um, is planting, um, it's growing little seedlings for spruce and pine at the Edmonton International Airport in a bit of a demonstration project. They wanna partner with the industry on some of these reclaimed well sites so that they can plant spruce and pine, return the land to its natural condition. This probably be more of a Northern issue. In the South, we've got to deal with fescue, but, uh, it, it, but, but here's the problem. Since no one's doing that surface reclamation, they can't scale up to the 10 million seedlings a year that they want to do. And what happens when you can plant 10 million seedlings a year? Well, then you can make the case that you're capturing CO2. And they've got a really nifty little outfit there where they use the latest hydroponic technology and, test the soils so that they're growing the soils, growing it in the soils where it's going to be planted. And that to me is a really sexy news story, but we can't get there until we start doing some surface reclamation. So, I, I mean, those are the kind of stories that I collect. And those are the kind of things I would love to talk about. It, it seems every time I talk to an energy industry CEO, the first thing they want to talk about is their environmental record, their greenhouse gas footprint, how they're getting to net zero, how they're improving their environmental issues. There are, there are hundreds of companies out there that are looking at ways of deploying environmental technology. And so I, I'm not saying that we lead with, you've got to love our industry and we're just going to keep on doing the same we always have. <laughs> we lead with, yeah, we heard you loud and clear. Look at all the amazing things that we're now doing. And I don't think we tell those stories enough. That's how I think you break through is that you've got to get to a person from their area of interest and where their heart is and then and then they'll care uh, about the the fact that that we get this is also a viable industry that employs a lot of people and it's really important to our economy but these are all stories that suggest that perhaps the energy the oil and gas industry in particular is going to be around past 2050 so is that almost a non-starter i mean we've been trying to talk about the environment and all the great things that we're doing since i've been here but the prevailing thought is why? Because it's going to be gone. We don't need oil and gas. And as a matter of fact, we can't have, we can't use oil and gas in, you know, in another five years. Otherwise, uh, what was AOC's, uh, we've got 12 years to get it together or, or that's it. So with that catastrophic climate change um, looming in the air, can we even start those conversations? Well, I would say that, we, the industry, I think, was resisting for a long time. The, under, the, the industry, as I watched it, um, didn't, didn't, I think that the reason why the hysteria got so amped up is that the industry's response was seen to be a bit tepid. It was, yeah, we'll slow the rate of increase or we'll reduce the emissions on the intensity of each barrel. There, there wasn't really an embracing. It was so. So if you go out to the public and say we'll just grow our emissions more slowly, and you've got some, an, and you're countering a group that says no, we've got to eliminate emissions altogether. You're, you're not talking the same language. So when the the big five, so Meg and Synovus and CNRL, Imperial and uh, Suncor, announced that they were going to work in collaboration to create a carbon capture utilization and storage system that would uh, capture carbon in Cold Lake, I think is where they want their hub to be. That is a 
true indica indication of a game changing and complete industry reversal, I think, on, on the tepid message. And, and so I think that, that the industry has done some great things recently to help neutralize some of the, those more extreme voices, because what they're basically saying with that is, yeah, we got this. I mean, I'll tell you, I've, I've I have two businesses that I've talked to recently. One of them has a plan where at their site alone, they can capture 40 megatons of CO2. Talk to another one uh, just recently. Again, their site alone is they could capture 80 megatons of CO2. So we've got, we produce 270 megatons of CO2 a year. You see what I mean? Like when we start talking about projects like that, we're now talking about, yeah, we, this isn't actually that hard for us to achieve in Alberta. We could actually achieve this. We could uh, find a way to completely capture and offset 270 megatons. And I would say that's a new conversation. I would say not everyone's having it as well, by the way. I, uh, I was an early adopter. Of, of net zero. I thought um, that I thought that changed everything when Europe, probably about two years ago, said that they were going to move to a net zero target. I could think of all of the ways that you could do offsets. And I became an early adopter of the idea of net zero. Now, it, I think because the big guys are there, because I'm seeing a lot of little guys that are saying, hey, how can we do this too? The, the provincial government is actively having discussions about how to create a, a carbon capture and storage policy, what the royalties might be on that, who has the right to operate a hub system, how much, who has the right to have decentralized storage. That's a very active conversation happening right now. And so if we can get to that conversation, then I absolutely believe that the energy industry will, will be able to survive in the long run. Because here's, the, here's, the, here's what we need to move to, is we need to accept that the industry needs to be net neutral. And if you're net neutral, what does it matter if you're going to, uh, uh, if you if you're going to use a fuel, if you capture the emissions 100% and either use them or you bury them back in the ground, that that actually is a environmentally neutral way of of developing your industry. And so that to me is the challenge for the industry, is in meeting that target, because once you've met that target, um, it becomes a lot more difficult for solar or for wind. Or, hydro, or for hydroelectricity to argue that they are a more environmentally friendly option if we can mitigate the, all of the environmental harm. So we're just on the cusp of that. So to me, innovation solves everything, but we needed some bold action. And so if we can get that bold action happening on the big players, I don't know, I think that's pretty game changing. Okay, well, I'm gonna ask you one more question and thank you so much for your time. Um, can we, uh, so can we get there? Because in my mind, uh, that's very sensible, very pragmatic, but has that ship already sailed? Uh, when you look at the federal government um, for the first six years, um, you know, they've talked about getting rid of, of oil and gas. That seems to be the general narrative when it comes to, um, you know, organizations like the IPCC and the UN, et cetera, et cetera. So how do we open that back up? and get into the conversation of, okay, well, if we can get to net neutral, you know, can there be some room for oil and gas, which I mean, in my mind, there has to be, but uh, you know, will that be acceptable to uh, those who um, I guess are, are pushing this story that it needs to be gone for good. Otherwise, you know, we're done. I mean, can we get back there? 
are we ever going to win over Greta, Greta Thunberg or Naomi Klein, the author of The Leap Manifesto, or Sapora Berman, who is a perennial detractor of our industry? No, that's not our target. Our target is to win over the people in the middle for whom we've never made the argument for. And I think that, that most people are reasonable minded. So we can't, we can't eliminate the criticism and we can't eliminate the, those who, who think that, that they have a, a different vision. We just have to assert our own. And I think our message is just far more powerful. We just need more voices that are, are out there telling it. And we have, when, we ha when we can sh share the positive environmental message, then I think that uh, more and more people will be persuaded. Like I, I love meeting young people now in the industry who are really excited about developing protocols for how we're going to certify carbon credits. I, I'm, real, I, I'm meeting young people who are really excited about how they can create devices at places where methane is leaking and capture it to create Bitcoin is one of the, is one of the proposals that, that is out there. I'm excited about the different environmental technologies that young people are, are proposing for how they reclaim and return landscapes to their natural conditions. So I think that this industry has the ability to create as many jobs in the environment as they do um, in, 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 in drilling. And the nice part about our drilling technologies now is that they have less and less impact on the environment. And so if we can clean up some of the legacy problems that we have, so that we can take away that black eye for the industry, so we can get companies' um, balance sheets improved so that they're able to raise money for their drilling programs, so that we do drilling in a more environmentally a sustainable way with, with less impact on the environment, with less leakage. And we also at the same time are developing environmental technologies that we can export to the world. I, I feel like we're, we're really on the cusp of some amazing things. And eventually, uh, to me, the, the foundation that I would love for us to talk about, is, there's two foundations really. One is when we're talking about natural gas, we, we really need to build out this hydrogen hub in Western Canada. And why, why don't we develop um, a, an agreement with Jerry Diaz from Unifor to come out here and cut the ribbon on a hydrogen vehicle plant? Why don't we produce hydrogen vehicles out here? This is where the hydrogen network is going to be. There's already 43 or 42 filling stations in California. We've got three filling stations in British Columbia. We've got a market in Texas. Why don't, why don't we make this? the hydrogen hub, not only for producing hydrogen, but all the products that are going to use hydrogen, all the machinery that's going to be repurposed and retooled to be able to take hydrogen. I think that that's a really exciting vision um, because once you've hived off the carbon dioxide, that also creates a huge opportunity for new industries. Sure, we can bury it, but we could also turn it into Carbon Black, uh, which a company down in, um, in uh, Medicine Hat does, CanCarb. Um, we could turn it into carbon fiber and create a whole new construction industry out of that new material rather than continue to rely on China for steel. Why can't we build all that here? Um, the other side of it too, when I talk about carbon fiber, there's a, a company called C6 that has um, developed process to, to extract bitumen without um, without producing CO2. In fact, they inject the CO2 into the bitumen and, it's, and they use it for non-combustive purposes because they have calculated that being able to use carbon, um, the fiber to create um, materials is five times more valuable than burning it. And so that makes a good economic case for maybe when we look at bitumen, maybe we should look at all the things we can produce out of it 
whether you have an electric car or hydrogen car, you're still going to need asphalt for roads. So maybe we just need to rethink how we use our bitumen. And to and and so to me, I I think that there is a, a huge opportunity for us to to make the joint case that not only are we going to rely on the traditional expertise and knowledge of our traditional energy workers. We're not going to retrain them all to install solar panels. We're going to make sure that they're able to use the expertise that they have in developing these new industries. I think that that is a, a really exciting message to send to the world. So it's now a matter of doing. Once we do and have some of these stories moving in that direction, I think that the, the narrative really follows itself. So I, I'm going to be one of the voices. That's part of the reason why I wanted to get into business advocacy and energy advocacy in particular is that um, even though I had a great platform when I was on, on the, the radio in Calgary, um, I, I now have a national platform. I can, I can talk to anybody I want about these wonderful issues, and I intend to do that. And I just hope that more, more voices will, will, uh, will stand up and do the same because it, it takes, it, I think it takes a chorus and uh, that we've had a chorus against us on the other side, but we have been beaten down enough that we've turned around. And this is the thing we, our industry always does. It always manages to recreate itself. So there's just a, a, new, a new path forward. And I'm, I'm very optimistic about it. Yeah, I think we can win. Well, thank you very much, Danielle. Um, where can our listeners find you? And, and uh, because I know they're uh, big fans and always interested in what you have to say. So where can they find you uh, right now? Fantastic. Well, I'm at albertaenterprisegroup.com. And so you can go online. We do a podcast each week on Thursdays. We're not doing one this week because I am, I'm uh, on a panel to talk about the election results yesterday. I'm going to try to find the silver lining in that, but that's the, the best place to reach me. I also have my own personal website, danielle at daniellesmith.ca is the way to, to email me or just go to daniellesmith.ca. And I, I keep people up to date with a weekly newsletter of all the things that I'm doing. Well, thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Thanks, John. That's it for the General Well Servicing CAOEC podcast. Thank you very much to our special guest, Danielle Smith. And thank you very much to our sponsors, General Well Servicing and RiggerTalk.com. If you like what you heard, please give us a like or a share. And until next time, keep it turning to the right.